0: Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast. My name is Andrea Samadi, a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. This is episode number 28 with Dr. Dan Siegel. He's a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and executive director of the Mindsight Institute where you can find his courses, workshops, books and tools to help anyone understand and apply what can sometimes be complicated scientific concepts and make them easy to understand and applicable to our daily lives. He has a dozen books that he's written the last time I counted with his most recent parenting book with Dr. Tina Payne called The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired coming out January 7th, 2020. Be sure to pre-order your copy as it's already hit the top 20 books in Cognitive Neuroscience, Child Development, and Neuropsychology on Amazon. Welcome, Dan.
1: Thanks for having me, a pleasure to be here with you.
0: Dr. Siegel, I can personally say that from reading your books, I've become a more mindful parent, more aware of myself and others, I've learned some no drama discipline strategies. I feel prepared for when my two girls reach their teenage years because of brainstorm. Yay. (laughs) Yes. And I feel that I, I, I understand how to repair relationships when my buttons have been pushed, all from reading your book. So it's such an honor to have you here today. Your influence is significant with the thousands of people around the globe you've been helping with your books your mnemonics to remember your strategies, and tools like your Wheel of Awareness Meditation. Thank you so much for being accessible to dive into your important concepts.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you today.
0: Thank you. Well, before I get into the questions that I designed for you, I just wanted to ask a question about what led you to write all these books to create tools to help our next generation become more aware and connected to each other.
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, there are a number of things just to point out. One is, you know, when you kind of wake up to what's happening on the planet and realize something isn't quite going right that's giving children a lot of anxiety, that's challenging adolescents to find meaning in life, that's leading to a lot of depression and even suicide. Um, As a physician, you know, I was feeling like there must be some way to apply scientific understanding to how all of these things unfold and what we might do to correct them. So as a psychiatrist, especially as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, um, I wanted to use everything I knew to figure out how to be of the most service. And ultimately, in addition to being a therapist where I see individuals in the office, I was wanted to use my scientific background to try to um, help people in a in a larger way, more like an educator, so that's when I started, you know, teaching more in workshops, and people requested that those workshops become books, and that's kind of how it all unfolded. That, you know, outside of the therapy suite, um, I could really help people think deeply in a scientific way about things like, you know, resilience and health, and what is the mind and Uh, basic things like that and that that became basically what I've been doing all this time
0: wonderful well I've been following you since I was referred to you in 2015 and uh, I'm so thankful and I quote Mm, you every time I do a presentation I talk about how the teenage brain isn't fully developed yet the importance Mm of just understanding where they are. And, and I love something that you've said, you know, it's just a powerful time, not a time to be afraid of. So a lot of people have found reassurance from, from everything that you're doing. So it's mm-hmm. powerful. Yeah, well, exactly. Then, yeah. Getting into some of our questions, I, I know we can't train the next generation of students for the old world. We've got to do things differently. And on our podcast, we've been speaking to leaders about the emergence of social emotional learning in our schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace. And I know you've been working with the Blue School in New York City. What skills do you think have been missing in our sc- in our schools and how do we bring these missing skills back for our next generation of students to be successful?
1: Yeah, well, you know, working with the Blue School has been quite a privilege. We um, started together um, when the school was just starting. And then over these, um, over dozen years, you know, really thinking deeply about how you might approach education so that the skills that you're pointing out could actually be woven into the fabric of the school. So one of the basic principles, um, you know, that we discussed was the idea that you could see the mind uh, in, in our institute. We call that mind sight. Um, other people might call it reflective function or mentalization or theory of mind or. You know, it's basically this capacity to sense the mind and to see that the mind is not just within your body, including your brain, but that it's also in the betweenness of who we are. So you have a kind of an inner mind and an inter mind, a between mind. And with that in, in mind, you can see where, it, you know, Dan Goleman, in his foreword to a book I wrote called Mindsight, said that mindsight is the basis of social and emotional intelligence. So we thought at the blue school, you know, what would happen if you actually created a mind sight school? What would that actually look like? How would that feel, what would that be like? And so with that in mind, we kind of thought about how you could keep curiosity alive and rather than, you know, make school be about answering the right things on a test, How would it be where you would inspire children and um, adolescents, basically, to hold on to that passion for learning so that they could be curious and creative and collaborative rather than the opposite of all that? And um, we just graduated our first class last year, and, you know, it was a real honor to be a part of the advisory board for the Blue School. And in in terms of our general topic about social-emotional learning, you know, the skills I think that we need to uh, cultivate are these new Rs which is about reflection, about relationships and about resilience and not getting rid of but building on reading, writing, arithmetic. So what is reflection? It's looking inward and becoming aware of the inner mind of oneself or the inner mind that's happening around you and in what we call others. I don't really like that term but it's what we have in English. Um, relationships are realizing that you know you are a part of an interdependent interconnected interrelated whole and that's systems thinking Um, and so we try to help uh, youth become systems thinkers and in many ways the future of our planet depends on the next generation embracing systems thinking rather than just being linear thinkers Uh, and then the third R, resilience means you can learn how to monitor where you're at so that the tendency to either go from denial about the challenges in life or despair about them, that zone in between denial and despair can be expanded, so you can sit with sadness or grief about what's happening on the planet. And instead of just shutting down, you actually can find a way to really be present for what's going on. And so this is what resilience is based on. It's a, it's a teachable skill. That's the amazing thing about it.
0: Wonderful. I was excited to see you doing work with the schools because this has been my background for the past 20 years. I've wanted to see social emotional learning in the schools since the nineties when, you know, it was just, there was no research to back it back then. So I'm, I'm excited for the direction it's going. And I do follow, the work that Kossel's doing, and so it's, it's definitely exciting times now. Um, when I was in my late 20s, back when I was teaching, I actually worked with a motivational speaker, and I saw him working with some strategies that were like positive thinking and having a good attitude, things that we called soft skills back then, and I really saw the, the power of this being in the schools, but there just wasn't the research behind it. And I know you've talked a little bit about Mindsight, Mm -hmm. but can you tell us about the ability for uh, having this Mindsight and it changing the structure and function of our brain, the things that you've been doing um, with the Blue School, and how are these students taking this Mindsight and then perhaps becoming more resilient in school and even medicine and health, like understanding the mind? How is... How are these skills transferring into schools, workplaces, and even medicine?
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I think um, when you realize that um, there are two perceptual systems, at least, you know, one is you can call physical sight. So, uh, uh, Andrea, I can see that, you know, you're there in a room with a map behind you, and I can see the physicality of that. But I can also look to you and imagine what's going on in your subjective experience. That perceptual ability to see the subjective experience inside of one another, and also inside of our own bodies, is how we sense the mind. the The word mind. Um, doesn't really have a formal definition, actually, in the field of education, or psychotherapy, or even in various fields that study it, um, like psychology. Um, However, if you just take the idea that you have a subjective experience, a feeling of being alive, that gets put under the general word mind, and then you even have consciousness that allows you to know you're having a subjective experience, and then you even have information processing that isn't uh, necessarily in consciousness. It's basically what school is all about, learning to process information. And when you see too, that the mind is also kind of a self organizing process, it's, it's a complex system that is um, having a way that it regulates its own becoming, you come to realize that if you could teach about the mind, is what we call mind sight, You would have a very different outcome for students because they would be getting these reflective skills to know what their subjective experience is to expand their container of consciousness to understand how they're processing information and even how they're regulating self-organizing their own unfolding across their lifespan if you teach those skills mindset skills you'd be teaching what castle you know Consortium for academic social and emotional learning ultimately is teaching about how to have emotional intelligence now what's interesting interesting about the word emotion is when you look at the science of that there isn't actually accepted definition on what emotion is so in this textbook I wrote called the developing mind which I'm now revising into its third edition with the help of 18 interns um, in that book uh, I've defined emotion as a shift in what we call integration. It's complex, but it ties all the sciences together about emotion. And one of the things that's integrated together is the feeling of emotion and the construction of meaning. And so if you want school to be meaningful, then it needs to focus on emotion because emotion and meaning are woven from the same cloth, both mentally and relationally, as well as in the brain. So it's a very interesting notion, in fact, that if you have a school that doesn't involve emotion, like when I went to medical school, no one was talking about the emotions of the patients who were told they were sick and dying. No one was interested in that. It was quite sad and and painful, actually, as a student. and the students, no one was asked to reflect on the emotional feelings associated with the meaning of being trained to be a professional. It was dealing with people who might die. Um, and where sometimes you couldn't help them. And it wasn't a failure if you were just supporting someone in their move towards death. That's what life has. It has death in it. Anyway, no one was talking about that. So, So it was the opposite of teaching emotional intelligence. And then the relationship of emotional intelligence that is meaning and the feeling of life and social intelligence is that if you don't have mindsight tools to know what the inner subjective life is like you're not going to have social skills either because our social capacity to be connected to one another and i think of it more as relational skills of being related to not just people who are like you but people who are not like you, and also to species that are not like you, to all living beings. It's kind of a relational intelligence, if you will. Um, This moves you from a linear thinking person saying, it's all about me, 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 to realizing who I am, my identity, is more a part of this larger whole. And so social intelligence is embracing the system's reality that Mindsight allows you to see that there's an inner and an inter aspect to the mind, the inner you could focus on for emotional intelligence, if you will, the social intelligence would be for the inter and it's all a part of mind really. Um, and this is a teachable set of skills that we can teach in school.
0: And then what about in medicine? Something about, uh, if it depends how the doctor's attitude towards you is.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. So what that research study showed, it wasn't so much that they wished you well, although we we would hope they would. Um, but what that study did in a very in a controlled way was, um, if someone came for a common cold, and the doctor was uh, instructed to make a very brief empathic comment, and that comment would be something like, Andrea. You're studying for a test, you're a graduate student, oh gosh, it must be so frustrating for you to have a cold right before exams. Okay, do X, Y, and Z. So that's one condition. Uh, A matched set of uh, controls got the same X, Y, and Z suggestion, but without the doctor pausing to reflect on your subjective experience. They could just say something like, oh, I see you have a cold, um, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. So you get the same instructions, only one group got an empathic comment. Not so much about the doctor wishing them well, but just, oh, this must be hard for you, right? right? So it's identifying your subjective experience. It's basically one aspect of empathy. When uh, the two groups were compared, the group that got empathy got over their cold a day sooner. And their, when they tested their immune system, they had a much more robust immune system fighting the cold virus. So this is a remarkable finding. And it's certainly the feeling you have when you're trained to be a physician, uh, or, well, not in my training, but in my personal experience, you know, mm-hmm. that if you're empathic with people, they do better. You right. know? Um, And uh, I mean, it was the most painful thing, I got to tell you, Andrea, that, you know, to be a young student surrounded by teachers who were telling me to stop asking my patients about how they felt because, and this is in quotes, it's not what we doctors do. I mean, now we know it's actually almost a form of malpractice to not give your patient the exact empathic comment that research shows will help them fight their illness with more robustness. You know, I mean, why wouldn't you do it? But doctors are kind of, if you look at the research on empathy in physicians, the more they go through medical training, the lower and lower and lower their empathy gets. There are ways to combat that, but in general, that's the pattern. And it's a serious uh, problem, especially when you look in a very, it's a very sad finding, but over half of people who have finished medical school now are either in postgraduate training or out in practice are seriously depressed, anxious, or thinking of killing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, over half. So this is like an epidemic of massive distress on the part of our caregivers. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, part of what's still sadly the, the issue is that the mind is absent from medicine. And this is uh, a sad statement about this distinction between physical sight and, you know, mind sight that when I went to school, and it's still the case, you know, there were super smart doctors who were my teachers. They had excellent physical sight skills. They were super, I went to a research institution, you know, and it was, You know, super smart doctors are very accomplished in their research field who are mind sight blind. And it was was bizarre because you can run around life acting like the mind doesn't exist. Unfortunately, I think that happens not just in medical school. I think it happens a lot of higher learning settings and even K through 12. You look at the education and the mind is absent from the curriculum. Mm
0: And with the fact that we're so immersed in our technology, we're not looking around even at our kids. I know this weekend we played a board game uh, with the girls and it was the first time we all sat around the whole family together, looking at each other because they're on their devices and we're doing our work in our offices. So it's, it's just different times, but being more mindful to connect, I think is so powerful.
1: Well, totally. Even if you look at uh, Patricia Kuhl and Andrew Meltzoff study on uh, I don't need to name names, but it was a an educational program, um, you know, that was said to increase. Uh, it was a video increase kids' learning, and then uh, a major corporation bought it, and um, then they did the study to show that actually, if you use those videos and take time away from face-to-face uh, learning, the kids actually learn less language. Yep. Right?
0: That study.
1: Yeah. And so it isn't that the video was bad. It's just that it takes time away from how we really learn, which is in relationship.
0: Got it. Yep. Well, bringing this back into well-being and in our classrooms, we know in order to have well students, we need well teachers and well children in our homes. The parent mindset is important. And we're coming to grips with what the mind is but we still have a society that struggles with health. Can you explain what we can do as adults to stay on top of our health and well-being, whether we're in the classroom or parents in the home? And, and I know you've talked a lot about epigenetics or the past stress that can come into our lives. How can we combat all of this and navigate towards an integrated brain?
1: Yeah, so, um... You know, when I was finishing uh, my training um, as a research fellow in um, attachment, it was kind of the relationships that kids have with their caregivers. Um, um, I I was struck, I was then asked to be the, the training director in child and adolescent psychiatry uh, at our program at UCLA. And, you know, I was struck how We as a field, whether you call it psychiatry as part of medicine or, you know, the broader field of mental health, you know, which includes psychologists and social workers and other therapists, or um, the even broader field of, you know, education and mental health, which are really important professions trying to help people develop towards well-being, you know, and um, or you include parenting in there and just talk about humanity and how we as a society or supporting group in all those levels of analysis. What essentially was absent was saying what the mind is and saying what a healthy mind is. So, there I was asked to be the training director in child psychiatry. I'd, I'd you know, been trained as much as you could be trained in this field and, you know, got this research fellowship and all that stuff. But I was really kind of embarrassed because I, even though I had all my board certifications, I felt like I really didn't learn what I needed to learn. If it was a field of mental health, no one ever told me what the mental meant, and no one ever told me what the health was. And, you know, in that field, and this is true in medicine in general, sadly, there was an emphasis on disorder rather than well being. So Andrea, you're asking me a really important question about, well, how do we promote well-being and all this stuff? So I'll just say for me in the last, whatever, 27 years, you know, everything I've been doing as a scientist and as a clinician and as an educator has been to try to ask that question and keep it scientifically grounded and move beyond the limitations of any particular field, like in... The philosophy of mind, for example, you're told never to say what the mind is. Or in in psychology and psychiatry, the mainstream view is what Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago: the mind is just brain activity. Um, and you know that perspective, while it's sort of understandable, um, is probably a partial view of a much larger story. So the the, the shorthand version of this is, I think the mind is way broader than the brain, which makes certain scientists very agitated. They chase me down the hallways and say, stop talking like that. Um, I think it's even bigger than the body. It includes the brain and its body, but it's bigger than that. And um, so then you say, well, what kind of thing could be both within you, like in your brain and in your body, and also in the relational connections you have with other people, and in fact, nature with the planet. And the answer is energy and information. And it changes, so we call it flow. And the system of energy and information is not um, restricted by the skull nor the skin. And so when you start thinking in systems terms, which I think is what we need to do as a species, you start realizing how interconnected everything is. And that reality of interconnection can be understood in what's called systems thinking. There are lots of ways of looking at that. One is biological, called general systems theory. Another is mathematical, called complex systems theory. They basically say the same thing, that complex systems are systems that have this open quality, this quality of being capable of being chaotic and nonlinear, which means small inputs lead to large results. And our mental lives are certainly uh, meeting those three criteria they're non-linear they're open they're chaos capable anyway what that tells you is that likely the mind is some aspect of a complex system and when you look at the mathematics of complex systems and by the way many people in the field of mental health parenting and education don't particularly like math so if they hear me say this part they start getting like you know Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from math class so I want to reassure you that we're not going to talk a lot about math but if you're going to look at systems you really got to at least be open to the ideas of math and forget the equations but the idea is this is that complex systems have what are called emergent properties that is you know take for example water you know water is made up of molecules that consist of hydrogen and oxygen So the hydrogen by itself and the oxygen by itself, gases, you'd never predict that it would become like the ocean or the bulk of what's in your body. But when you combine hydrogen and oxygen, you make a new thing and there's an emergent property of water that arises from the interaction of the elements of the system. That's what emergence means. And anyway, one of the emergent properties that's particularly relevant, I think, to the mind is something called self-organization. And um, when you look deeply at self-organizing properties of complex systems, it turns out that they optimize the flow of that system to be in basically a flow of harmony that is bounded on one side, if it's a river, by chaos, bounded on the other side by rigidity. And for me, back in 1992, that math statement, blew my mind, I was actually in this very room here, this is my home office,
0: yeah.
1: and I was sitting just right over there, when I read it, it was like four in the morning, I couldn't sleep, because I thought, why do all my patients have chaos or rigidity in their lives? What, is, there, is there a field of science that says why that might be true? And I was like scouring every field of science I could find, and I couldn't find anything, it was so frustrating. And I was working on this the whole topic of what is emotion and all sorts of other things. Anyway, so I then I like see this in the book. And I go, oh, my God, that is like every patient I've ever seen comes in with chaos, rigidity, or both. And the way the math, if you rearrange the terms, talks about optimal self-organization, because that's when self-organization is impaired. It goes to chaos or rigidity. Optimal self organization comes with um, flexibility and adaptability. And the math term for resilience over time is called coherence. And it's energized with a sense of vitality and stable, meaning not rigid, but reliable. I just went nuts because I thought, whoa, how do you develop that optimal self organization? And then I looked through the book and it says you link differentiated parts so you know i had to come up with a name for that because when i met with the mathematicians in this area they said we don't have a name for it we just call it linking differentiated parts i said well that's kind of clunky let's call it integration which they weren't so happy about for reasons we don't need to get into but um i just call that integration so integration we're defining as differentiation plus linkage right so if i have these two balls they can be differentiated from each other And if I were juggling them right now, which I won't do because I'll probably drop them, then you can see there's this emergent property where they retain their differentiated nature. But as you saw the balls going like that, you would realize that I'm linking the differentiated parts, but they don't lose the differentiated nature as they're getting linked. Right. And so in that view of integration, that's when you're This faces flow, flexible, adaptive, coherent, energizes, stable, spells the word uh, faces. It's basically harmony. And then everything since 1992 has been saying health in our, in my writings anyway, you know, health emerges from integration, the differentiation of elements of a system and their linkage where they don't lose differentiations. I don't have to keep on saying that, but that's what we mean by integration. And then that's the proposal from 92. And with these 18 interns, I said, You know, it's so simple. Please find one study that shows that's not true. And these 18 interns, they would go, You mean true? I said, No, 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 fine, it's not true. I want one study that goes against that. So they search and they search, they search. They couldn't find even one study that doesn't support that view. Doesn't mean that view is accurate, it could be totally wrong. But at this moment, now that i'm finishing the revisions of the developing mind third edition you know so far every bit of science we have supports the following statement health is integration and so if we can bring that into schools it means we'll cultivate well-being and resilience
0: and how do you do that in a school? How do you do integration, recognize differences in a school or in a workplace? Well,
1: at the Blue School, or we have a school called New Roads in, in um, Santa Monica, um, where we're doing this, we're making them integrative schools uh, where the, the fundamental principles, you know, mindsight allows you to learn to monitor what's going on in terms of energy and information flow within and between and then to modulate that flow towards integration. Um, and the teachers um, you know, in those two schools can, can actually learn in their own unique way how to apply that in the classroom, let's say. So here would be one example. You're teaching a, a history lesson, let's say. You wanna differentiate different perspectives on you know, the moment in history you're talking about. So you ask people, what did this mean to you? When you hear this, how does this relate to your own family's history? How does this go back in time? Or, you know, I mean, take, for example, the United States of America. 400 years ago, the first slave ship arrived on the shores of North America, where people were kidnapped from Africa. And the foundations of what was going to become in the future, the United States of America, were built on slavery. And you have, Um, The worst genocide on earth happening at the hands of Europeans killing the native peoples of North America, the indigenous population. So, to really understand the troubles that are um, sadly all over the United States of America, um, you've got to understand historically what that means. Now, in a classroom, what that means is that there will be people of color, whether they're from native. American uh, origin or African origin, or even just you look at racism in America, you can begin to understand everyone brings their own differentiated experience of that. So, with white skin, even though my ancestors came from Russia, you know, in the early 1900s to America and we weren't here during slavery and all that stuff, I have white skin. People say you're European, which Russia was a part of Europe in a way. So, uh, I'm a part of that. You know, what's called white privilege to understand that deeply in a classroom would be a way to integrate the classroom when you are talking about the history lesson about the United States. And to ignore that is to ignore the mind of every child in that classroom and then to be able to express it, to recognize it, to acknowledge it. To be curious about it, I use an acronym COLE, to be curious, open, accepting, and loving about it, allows you to go from just the quiet, um, you know, disenfranchisement that often c- comes with disempowerment and racism. You talk about it. You talk about how, you know, even before 400 years ago, you know, we have about probably 50 million years of primate history, 50 million, way before humans. Of in-group out-group distinctions, there's evidence to suggest that when we were just, you know, monkeys, this was the problem. And so we took that in-group out-group distinction, and we survived based on saying, "Are you in my in-group or are you in my out-group?" And if you're in my out-group, I'm going to treat you with a lot of wariness and hostility. I might even kill you. And if you're in my in-group, once I assess that, I'll treat you with more kindness and care. So, ironically, humanity having this inherited primate history you know has this long 50 million year history of assessing who is like me they're my in group who's not like me however I'm going to assess that they're my out group and then survival for all my ancestors was based on doing that so we can't just get rid of that we do that it's called implicit bias you know we automatically do that. So. You know, when I, I was teaching up in Toronto, um, at a, um, uh, in a very diverse, uh, um, That's
0: where I'm from, by the way. Are you from Toronto? I am. To okay. So, you know, it was, the, it was a
1: rough part of Toronto. I can't I don't remember. East West side. Then, of what is that?
0: Probably the West End by the airport.
1: Yeah. It was a, it was a really rough side. We were there and the kids, it was absolutely amazing. And, you know, it was so beautiful to be with them because I just talked about this and they were just so like their eyes were like popping out of their head because someone had read one of the teachers read brainstorm. Mm -hmm. So when they knew I was touring the school for other reasons, it was the Roots of Empathy program was there. They had me visit this classroom. So then we did a Skype thing, you know, with the class when I was back in L.A. I can't tell you how beautiful it was, Andrea, because. These kids these were um, 14 year olds, they were in eighth grade. You know, they got the concepts and one of the kids, even though this was Canada, you know, but he was black and he said, you know, having black skin makes me feel really ashamed of who I am. And the other kids, some of the white kids said, why, why would that be? And, And they started talking about, you know, racism in Canada and racism in the world and all this stuff. And the depth of their discussion, the depth of their collaboration was so beautiful because we have this incredible ability to go beyond what we've inherited. And with consciousness and collaboration, we can be incredibly creative. We can support one another. And instead of the usual thing of who's gonna get the best grade in this class, who's gonna get the best test, that's all physical site stuff. Who can has the best memory? Here, it was like, how can we participate, I call it a Mui, where you differentiate the me and you realize the deeply interconnected nature of we, not just with other people who are like you, but people who are not like you, and not just with humans, but with all species, all living beings. And then you go, wow, the Mui identity allows us to come up with a name, and we're collecting this from all over the world, how every language might say, me plus we equals what? We. And in fact, I'm, I just wrote the um, afterward for the beautiful organization called Me to We out of Toronto. Oh. Um, and they asked me to write the, the, the postscript at the end of this incredible book they just wrote all about we, wow.
0: you know?
1: And um, it was so sweet and so beautiful. And the issue there is the, the modern culture keeps on telling us that we're separate. And the lie of the separate self, I think, is not only killing youth, but it's killing adults, literally, and it's making the world suffer because we take this separate self, the solo self, which is a lie, which we think is true, like you're Andrea and I'm Dan and that's it, we just have a separate self, instead of incorporating also from that me, noun-like entity, a more interconnected, we-like, verb set of events that is who we are. And that's, I think, the trouble, is that so much of modern culture makes us live like a noun. And so we say, well, it's all about me collecting a lot of toys so that when I die, I have a lot of toys. Instead of, how can I realize I'm a part of a relational, interconnected, interdependent, interrelated whole called life on Earth? And even though I get about 100 years of living body, who I am is way beyond that time of that body. And the joy and the belonging and the love that emerges from living that we reality where I say, I do have a body. I need to sleep well. I need to exercise my body. I need to eat well. I need to enjoy my body. I need to know the history of where this body's ancestors were from. That's all me. And that's great. And underscore and, not but, and I am also a we. And that means I'm beyond this skull and this skin and who I am in my identity is as much my relational connections to other people on the planet as it is this bodily experience. It's a win-win-win situation because the individual will come to feel this breath of relief that they can have an integrated identity of me plus we where they're both real and really important. That's the one win. People around them are gonna realize that this person is incredibly collaborative and full of love and connection, which is awesome. That's the second win. The third win is that Earth, I think, has been damaged because we excessively differentiate the self. And this solo self says, My job is to get as many toys as I can before I die. So let's say I build a factory. Well, if I sell enough stuff from this factory, I can get enough money to buy enough toys for me and my children. Well, that's how you win the game, isn't it? I don't care if the forest is destroyed or I pollute the ocean or the air. Why would I care? I'm gonna get a lot of toys. And that's the mentality of modern culture that's about to kill life on Earth, certainly kill humanity. So we have a window of opportunity here to say, it's not just about informing people or scaring them. It's really in many ways about transforming them to a more integrated way of living. And this integrated way of living to be very specific is to say, you do have a me, you also have a we that's been ignored. And deep social emotional intelligence is to embrace this we way of living and this third benefit, this third win of the win-win-win, is that Earth is waiting for all of us to realize that Earth is an extension of our bodily self. We are as much the planet as we are the individual in the body we were born into.
0: That's powerful. And it brings me to just close this up. It's with your wheel of awareness and I've been doing that activity, Your 30 Minute Wheel, for the past two months and I downloaded it in 2015 and didn't start doing it daily until two months ago and it's just powerful the changes I've noticed of you know, my relationships and how I see myself in the world and it's only been a couple months so I wish I had started it in 2015 but you know, everything you've been talking about with the connection to the world, it's a really powerful tool. Perfect. that's
1: great well how how has it been for you to do that what have you noticed how your experience has shifted in this relationality what can you say a little more about that
0: yeah definitely well I, I had been doing um, you know like guided meditations in the past that I found easy to do and this one the fact that I have to focus and pay attention it it was slow going to get started but then When I have to focus on all my body parts, I feel like, you know, when you're exercising at the gym and you have to isolate a muscle, you don't just lift the weights, you isolate. When you're going to all the body parts, I'm focused more. So I feel like I'm strengthening my focus. And then when I go to my senses, I feel like I'm focused there as well. My relationships, um, thinking about people, that sending my love to people all over the place Uh, i'm not just in arizona i'm you know thinking all my friends all over the world you know england uk scotland canada everybody that i know just made me feel more connected with this activity
1: oh beautiful beautiful that's so beautiful well you know it's never too late to start and it what what's striking about what you're saying andrea is that you know It's just a matter of, in the real practice, you're integrating consciousness to open up your sense of self, not to lose your sense of self, but actually to, in many ways, as you're beautifully saying, extending your sense of self and expanding your sense of self so that you you get the benefit of realizing you are a part of a much larger whole than your bodily experience. Now when people just hear that as words, they may go, oh, that's ridiculous, or oh, that's not possible. And that's why you say, okay, I hear you're saying that. So please just try this way of integrating consciousness. It's just a way of strengthening attention, opening awareness, building kind attention. Just try it, see how it goes. Now you've been doing it for two months and you can feel the difference. I do it every day and it's not only got these three pillars of focusing attention, opening awareness, and kind of attention, which research from other studies shows are it's really, really supportive of your well-beings. You know, it slows the aging process. It improves the immune function. It actually makes your um, inflammation go down. It makes your cardiovascular system work better. In all these ways, it's really healthy for you. It actually, you know, those studies of these three-pillar practices show it integrates the brain, which is the base of regulation. So. You get that and you get this expanded sense of self, which the world really needs us to develop.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on today to dive deeper into your work. I really could talk to you all day, but I know I've got to let you go. For those who'd like to learn more about Dr. Siegel, you can go to www.drdansiegel.com where he has a ton of tools, books, and resources that you can use immediately like this Wheel of Awareness meditation. You can actually download it to your phone and get started right away. You can find him on LinkedIn or Twitter at Dr. Dan Siegel or Instagram at Dr. Dan and Facebook. He's got a new book coming up, The Power of Showing Up, in January 2020. And I already mentioned it's already hitting the top 20 books before its release. And also the Developing Mind third edition to pay attention to. Dan, you're a true difference maker. And it's been such a pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you. Thank Thank you, Andrea.
1: Great to be here with you.
0: Thank you.